rational debate, cogent analysis, bipartisan solutions. Welcome to this edition of The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me this week is my regular co-host, Jay Carson, Cleveland area attorney with decades of experience in the trenches of Republican politics. How are you doing this week, Jay? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing just fine. You know, before we get to our first story, there are a few little administrative things just wanted to take care of. First off, those of you who uh, have listened to the show more than once, you might notice that there was something new, some a new theme with no music, a lot shorter. And, and there's a little bit of a story behind this. I listen to a lot of podcasts. And so in thinking about a new theme, and there were a lot of listeners who say, your old theme is just so incredibly dull and we want something new. Uh, well, I thought about how my, I my felt. My kids wanted to go back to the, the, uh, the love of the government. But. You know, exactly. But there were other people who said, <laughs> is this really... In, you know, kind of in fitting with what you're sort of, what you're doing, right, the sort of right. vibe you're trying. And, it's a little you know, I, I thought yeah. those, exactly. And so I thought those were reasonable points as well. So we came up with this and, you know, I thought sort of in terms of how I view podcast intros, they're kind of like clever voicemail messages. You know, they, they're clever once or twice, but after that, you're just, oh God, can we just please skip this thing and move along? Um, and so I actually thought about maybe we should try no intro, but one of our board members pointed out, you know, it's important to let first time listeners know what we're all about and what we try to do. And so I thought this was sort of the best of all worlds and I really like it. But the main thing, of course, is how you feel about it. So please, folks, let us know, good, bad, or indifferent, and you can, you can just get in touch with us, mail at politicsguys.com. Let us know what you think about the new minimalist intro. All right, second thing. This week, uh, I was on the, I was a special co-host, I guess you could say, on the 45th podcast. I joined uh, Robbie and Susan to talk about the NRA, CPAC, the Mueller investigation, and that memo from the House Democrats on the Intelligence Committee. It was a lot of fun. Uh, it was uh, different for me, but I really enjoyed it. Uh, it's part of a host exchange thing we're doing with the 45th. In fact, someone from the 45th will be coming to our show probably sometime in, I guess, late March, I think is what we're shooting for. So if you're interested in hearing that, you can check it out at their website. It's 45th.com. That's 45th.com, or you can just search for the 45th podcast on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Spotify, or, you know, whatever you use to listen to uh, podcasts. And finally, uh, this uh, last week, I had something of an ongoing Twitter feud with one of our longest uh, standing and most loyal fans, Eric, over say the comments I made. so. You know, it's true. I get some flack, too. It's not all you, Jay. Uh, you, you might recall, Jay, that I made some comments about Wayne LaPierre. Yes. And I basically said he was either a fool or a knave uh, uh, for saying those what I thought were ridiculously inflammatory things about how uh, liberals don't care about kids. Uh, and, and Eric suggested that I was being completely blind on this issue and I hadn't called out uh, liberals who made similar statements. And I said to Eric, well, if you can find a liberal who made a similar statement of similar stature, I would I will call this person out at the very top of the show. And Eric sent me something about the governor of Connecticut saying that Republicans have blood on their hands. Uh, now, I don't think that's 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 hugely inflammatory and unhelpful. I don't know that it's quite at the same level of, you know, liberals don't care about kids, but 
point taken. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I think that's actually it's it's more inflammatory. I think. Well, I, in any case, that's maybe maybe a, a small difference. But the point being is that's exactly the kind of uh, inflammatory rhetoric that I think is completely unhelpful. And I think it was shameful for Connecticut's governor to say that. And so there you go, Eric. I hope you now believe that I am not completely close-minded and blinded on this issue. So I, I am bipartisan uh, in terms of being against ridiculously inflammatory rhetoric. So there we go. All right. So, uh, you know, our, for our first story today, uh, President Trump shocked, well, I guess just about everyone except Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, uh, when late this week he announced plans to impose tariffs of 25% on imported steel and 10% on imported aluminum. Now, the administration says doing this doesn't violate international trade agreements. They cited a trade law provision allowing for the imposition of tariffs for national security purposes. And many U.S. trading partners disagree with this, and they'll certainly be challenging the move as well as retaliating by imposing their own tariffs on U.S. goods. And this announcement disturbed a lot of Republican legislators. There are a couple of comments that I thought were fairly uh, indicative of how a lot of Republicans felt. Uh, Utah's Orrin Hatch said, tariffs are taxes paid by American businesses and American families, and new tariffs would jeopardize some of the opportunities we successfully created through tax reform. Then there was Pennsylvania's uh, Senator Pat Toomey, who said tariffs would be very bad for consumers, would raise costs for all kinds of products, would destroy more jobs than they save, and would invite retaliation from other countries. Well, of course, Donald Trump couldn't let that be. He needed to respond. And so he tweeted, when a country, USA, is losing many billions of dollars on trade with virtually every country it does business with, trade wars are good and easy to win. Example, when we are down $100 billion with a certain country and they get cute, don't trade anymore. We win big. It's easy. So, so Jay, what do you think? Is this an easy big win, as President Trump seems to think? No, I, I, would, I would say for all of the folks who have, who have uh, uh, been after me for saying I'm some sort of uh, in the bag for Donald Trump or a Trump apologist or uh, I should be, I should be uh, auditioned for, uh, uh, to be the next uh, Trump spokesperson, um, this is your day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, look, this, this uh, is, is the sort of uh, disaster that, that uh, troubled me and many conservatives from the beginning of the Trump campaign. Uh, the the hope was that uh, this was simply campaign rhetoric and he wasn't actually going to do anything. Uh, now it seems he is actually going to do something, um, unless, unless he is somehow dissuaded by uh, a lot of the prominent Republicans uh, who, have, who have spoken out against this. I think you're going to see a lot more um, uh, of uh, folks in industry speaking out against this. Uh, the the stock markets have spoken out against this, um, in, in you know, uh, bigly, uh, you might say. So, to me, this is this is really troubling, and I I share the frustrations of uh, Warren Hatch and Pat Toomey, in that of all the economic progress that has been made uh, through things like deregulation and tax reform, uh, this this puts them puts them in jeopardy. Um, now the good good news, bad news. I mean, I think the the bad news is he's thinking about doing this. Uh, um, my my sense uh, is that he he has the authority to do this. 
Uh, now, whether whether other countries may cl- uh, cry foul under the agreements and seek retribution, I mean, I think that's that's what many of them are, are going to do. Um, the good news is this is something that can be undone quickly, uh, if if need be, uh, and and hopefully he will come to his senses. But you know, just I, and like we've talked before, about this, before, I don't we, know, before we move on, yeah. I just want to point the and hopefully he will come to his senses comment now. It seems to me that if one thing we know about Donald Trump is that he does not back down, he doubles down in the face of criticism. And so it, it seems to me, while I I would like to believe that this is a possibility that he would back off of this position, given the criticism he's gotten from it, my sense of who he is uh, psychologically, emotionally, is he's likely to, that's likely to just have him get his back up and be less likely to pull back on that. That that could be true. Um, I hope it's not. Yeah, I'm, I hope it not. I hope it's not. All. I mean, my uh, my guess though is with this, it's not simply going to be uh, criticism that he's receiving. Uh, there's going to be data, uh, and that's in terms of, of things like the stock market, uh, in terms of of uh, what other costs that uh, other manufacturers are paying. For example, automakers. Uh, really, I mean, just about uh, about anyone. I mean, it's, it's such a strange and, and and I should highlight how how very unrepublican um, this type of, of move is. Um, you know, we, we talk occasionally, we go back to the uh, we go old school and, and talk about Adam Smith um, and so forth. And, and Adam Smith's big idea, and he's, he's often credited as being sort of the founder of modern capitalism. Uh, but what he was talking about wasn't even so much of as capitalism as a as an economic system for a country. His wealth of nations was about free trade, uh, and it was it was about the idea that uh, you know it, it benefits everyone uh, for those countries uh, to do what they do best, and those manufacturers and, and producers to do what they do best. Uh, and and to have a freedom of trade back and forth, and it it uh, lifts all boats, um, and it it moves uh, progress forward. So that has been sort of at the, at the heart of, of sort of Republican economic theory um, for for you know two centuries now. Uh, and and really, I think and I've, I've always I mean you can make the argument that I mean it, it's it's not coincidental that the the wealth of the nations was published in 1776. Um, that it's it sort of of the same. The same vibe, the same uh, feel that that inspired our, our Declaration of Independence and our our founding documents. Uh, there was this sense of of liberality, uh, both politically and and in economics, that was sweeping the globe. Um, but so I, I mean that's I'm I'm entirely flummoxed uh, that that Trump is is doing this. Um, I'm hoping that uh, Republicans will step up. And uh, condemn this. Um, I, and it's I, interesting. Not, it's interesting the Democrat buy-in though too already. But there's some, yeah, absolutely. And it's it's uh, because of course there are some Democrats who who would like to see more tariffs and trade restrictions and that sort of thing. And that's where I yeah, disagree. And the with, idea being it's protectionism that that in many yeah. cases protects uh, union jobs. Yeah, but and, you know let let's look at this. You know the the Trump administration cited national security. This is a, a, an exception that's never been invoked since the WTO came into existence. And the idea that this is has anything to do with national security is, well, in the words of the, uh, the Wall Street Journal, it's preposterous. You know, uh, more than or right around 70 percent of steel in the United States is United States steel. 
So idea that there's some kind of great threat, you can make maybe a slightly better case with aluminum, but still our biggest, we get most of our aluminum from, uh, from Canada, you know, the evil threat to the North right. from national security. And so this is just, you know, this is just ridiculous. And in terms of the effect on jobs, this is also really obvious. The uh, Aluminum Association pointed out that uh, uh, only 3% of the total aluminum industry jobs are in actually aluminum smelting, creating aluminum. aluminum. The other 97% are in those downstream industries. I mean, it's a similar thing with uh, steel. Steel using industries, according to the Wall Street Journal, again, uh, employ around 6.5 million people. The steel making industry, around 140,000. And, you know, this to me, it does, this doesn't surprise me because one issue that Donald Trump has been consistent on for a long time, one issue where I believe he has a strong policy view is in trade, in being uh, anti-free trade, I I would say. You know, I think he has this nostalgic view of the 1950s and 60s when in places like Pittsburgh and Youngstown, the the steel plants were going, you know, full bore and heavy American manufacturing. But I'm very familiar with the the uh, steel nostalgia. Yeah. Yeah. Of course you wouldn't, given where you grew up. But that that world is gone, and the that 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 trying to get that world back is is a fool's errand, and you know, and and that's why I just think this is just a disastrous policy, and I don't think it. I think it's going to happen, and I just think it's going to be up to the next president to uh, bring some common sense to bear on this. Well, you Any know, I, I think oh, the nostalgia ahead. thing. I, yeah, I, I think that's that plays. And, and Jonah Goldberg had a a really great piece in his his. Uh, uh, newsletter, um, the the G, G files, which if, if you're into that kind of thing and, and you like the Jonah Goldberg approach, um, uh, which is sort of my approach in a lot of ways. There, there was a time, Mike, when you thought I was secretly Jonah Goldberg. Yes. Um, um, no, I'll tell you, folks, if, if Jay were to write a weekly column, it would look very much like Jonah Goldberg. So if you can't get enough of Jay, sign up for Jonah Goldberg's come. I read it every week. I, I disagree with him a lot, but it's, it's a great read. So he's, I, I, he's, much, yeah. he's, he's even more entertaining than I am. Um, well, I wouldn't necessarily but, go that far, <laughs> but, but no, the, the, the idea of nostalgia that, uh, oh, we're going to become this great industry and employ all these, these thousands and thousands of people in the steelmaking industry. Um, that, you know, in part, the reason that doesn't happen is because technology has advanced so much. Uh, we don't need to employ uh, that many people in these industries. Uh, we can make as much steel, if not more steel, uh, cheaper than we could in those days. We can make it cheaper. We can make it cleaner. Um, so that's I think you're, you're exactly right. I mean, he's, he's hearkening back to a world that, that just doesn't exist anymore. Uh, my hope is that. Uh, uh, either cooler heads will prevail before he moves forward with this, uh, or uh, the response in terms of, of uh, uh, industry and, and retaliation from other countries will be such that he realizes that this was a, a bad path and he will find a find some sort of an exit ramp. Yeah, absolutely. You know, well, before I move on, one thing on that, that topic of nostalgia I wanted to mention, I've been meaning to mention this for a while now. I, I'm in the middle of reading a great book on this topic, this kind of nostalgia that really both parties feel for the past and are trying to sort of recreate this America of the 1950s and 60s, at least in terms of economic uh, economics. And uh, it's called uh, The Fractured Republic by a guy named Yuval Levin, who's a, is a conservative writer, but he has a certain, uh, I would call it intellectual humility and open 
open-mindedness that I find uh, refreshing and great. And he's a super smart guy. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes, but it's definitely worth reading. I'm a big Levin fan. Yes. Yeah, he's, he's a great guy. I haven't read the book, but yes, I like his other, all his other stuff. All right. Well, moving on, it's been another busy week in firearms policy in the wake of that February 14th mass shooting at Marjorie Stillman Douglas High School. Um, congressional Republicans seem to be directing a lot of the focus on what they see as a grossly inadequate response by local law enforcement as well as the FBI. And I think they've also somewhat coalesced around the fix NICS bill, which would strengthen that background check system. Now, Democrats are arguing that these measures don't go far enough and are calling for things like mandatory background checks for private gun sales, uh, raising the age for buying weapons from 18 to 21, which is a proposal that has some Republican buy-in as well. Uh, and many Democrats, though, are also calling for outright bans on the sale of assault-style weapons in high-capacity magazines. And these are measures that are un highly unlikely, I'd say, to get serious legislative consideration in any Republican-controlled Congress. Now, in that televised meeting with lawmakers that President Trump uh, had this week, he seems to like these things, uh, I would say he it's fair to say that he shocked and dismayed many of his fellow Republicans by calling for tougher legislation than many of them are comfortable with, uh, accusing them of being petrified, in his word, by the NRA. He said, we want to pass something great. And to me, the something great has no, to be does. where we yeah. prevent it from happening again. Yeah, he never said, we want to press something, you know, decent. Uh, and he also suggested that due process really wasn't much of a concern, uh, saying, take the guns first, go through due process second, which, which to me at least indicates kind of a fundamental lack of understanding as to what due process actually means. <laughs> so, uh, Jay, what are your thoughts on all this? Well, I, um a, a couple of things. I, I think, you know, we we talked about last week, I think the areas where there are agreement, uh, things like bump stocks, I think that's that's sort of a no-brainer. I think that will get done in some, some way, shape, or form. Uh, I think the fix the background checks. Democrats uh, are going to be at a disadvantage on, on this issue generally. And, and people people listen to me and say, what, are you crazy? Um, but no, I think, I think there's a Democrat disadvantage uh, just in terms of the NRA is 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 powerful in a lot of Democrat districts, uh, and uh, the there are many Democrat representatives who do not want to upset the NRA, and and I'm I'm going to say more about that in just a second as to why. Um, but so so to resist I things uh, like a, a background fixing the background check system, um, I think it's, that's really difficult political sell. I mean unless the the um, um, uh, if the rationale is uh, we won't do this unless there's also some sort of a ban. Uh, the problem is the Republicans can go ahead and take a vote on fixing the background check and, and Democrats will be forced right. to vote against it. Now, before um, we move on, I just wanted to point out on the other side of things, the House actually passed a bill along these lines, but they included with it something that they desperately want, uh, a reciprocal uh, recognition of concealed carry, concealed carry from other states. And so that's that's sort of what the Republicans are trying to tie on to it, and which is a common, a common thing for both parties. You have something that everyone seems to be in agreement on, and you put your own little policy preference on there, and the other side you're hoping has to sort of hold their nose and vote with it to get that. So Yeah, you know. and, and I say, you know, as much as a reciprocal concealed carry, I think, is 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 probably a good idea. I think it's a bad tactic on on this right now. Um, that said, I mean, maybe it's you know the idea that Senate the Senate can pull that and pass a, a straight uh, background check fix. Uh, maybe that makes it easier for some folks. But um, 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I I understand why they're 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 tying them. I I don't know that you know. Again, I'm not I'm not the speaker of the house, uh, at least not yet. Um, so, um, but the, the last piece uh, uh, on the well. The age restrictions, I think that's sort of a throwaway. I think most Republicans realize it's not going to do much. Uh, but at the same time, it doesn't do a whole lot uh, to offend, you know, the NRA. Uh, that's one of those kind of giveaways that, that uh, I, I can see being part of the deal um, uh, maybe down the line. If they, you know, they're not going to give on assault weapons, uh, they may give on the age. Um, what else? What else was it that? Uh, well, yeah, the, the public meeting thing, and it seems to oh, me that yeah. you know he did that on immigration. And my, I saw Democrats being very people in my party being very excited about this and, and happy. But I would say, remember what happened on immigration. Uh, you know, I think Donald Trump plays to his audience and likes to, you know, wrong foot people and so forth. But he's also shockingly easy to manipulate for a president of the United States. And so I would expect something similar to this uh, uh, that we saw in immigration on guns. And so for people who are expecting something big to happen, something great in the president's words, I, I wouldn't hold your breath because I think the NRA, the Republican strategy in general, is to sort of stall and wait for the public fear and outrage to die down, as it always has. And, and hope that that kind of Democrats will take away your guns message will get them more votes than the sort of Republicans won't act in the face of gun violence message that Democrats will be put, putting out there. And but, I think but keep based in mind, on one of the Democrat proposals is to take away your guns. So, Well, I mean, some Democrats are proposing that, sure, and some Republicans are proposing some draconian things, too. But I think for the most part that uh, there aren't really you can't really find any mainstream Democrats proposing to take away guns that people have. Most of these proposals involve around making it more difficult to get certain types of weapons for certain people. Sure, sure. And my, the last point that I, I lost my train of thought on was the the due process comment. Uh, and I think what he was referring to there is is the Marco Rubio uh, bill proposal, which I I you know like a whole lot. I think it'd be better, a lot more effective uh, if done at the state level. Uh, but of, of having these uh, uh, firearm protection orders, essentially, that would allow someone to go to court um, to get an order to have someone uh, stripped of their, their uh, guns if they have them and to um, uh, put them on a, a no-buy list. And there's a lot of variations on this, and I think that you could do this with the proper uh, due process protections. You could do it with the uh, enough... Um, uh, privacy protections. Again, court records can be sealed and so forth. Uh, and typically, I mean, I think maybe what Trump was talking about, a lot of times the way these types of of, of hearings work, uh, uh, protective order hearings, is someone goes to court and says, uh, someone is, you know, has threatened to kill me. It's, you know, whatever, my ex-husband or my ex-boyfriend, and uh, I need a protective order. And the the typical statutes, the way these work is, you can do that in what's called an ex parte hearing, which means it's just you, uh, nobody else, and the court will issue the the order. Uh, but the court then sets a hearing within typically it's two weeks is the, the time period where both sides get to be there and have a full hearing on the merits. Uh, I think that's what Trump was referring to in the skip the due process while well, the due process later. Now that, I mean, in, in, in the Trumpian world, or he could have just meant 
something something else entirely bizarre. But I, I think that's that's sort of a standard thing in most kind of uh, domestic violence protection orders and, and any other sort of protective orders is you get that ex parte hearing. Uh, which is sort of a minimal threshold for the court to issue an order, and then there is a uh, adversarial hearing, uh, you know, within a couple of weeks. Yeah, and and we've actually talked about that uh, uh, that sort of proposal before, the like gun violence restraining order thing. And and I think I agree with you that that could be a, a very a very good thing to do. And, and I also think that it's probably something that's best done at the state level. And you know that at the state level thing, I wanted to ask you about something a comment you made. You said that you thought that the reciprocal concealed carry thing would be perhaps a good idea. I'm wondering, though, isn't it, you know, isn't it kind of a fundamental right of the states to make these decisions about public safety? And as a as a conservative, aren't you a bit uh, uncomfortable with the idea of the federal government sort of forcing states to recognize, you know, that particular uh, provision? Well, we do have a full faith and credit clause, uh, though, too. And this is a, a concern of someone who is, you know, carrying uh, on their person in their car and they're driving through one state, they drive into another, uh, and all of a sudden um, uh, they're in violation of the law where they weren't, and then they cross another state border and they're okay again. Uh, that's that's the concern is is that sort of um, patchwork uh, sort of sort of idea for people who are are traveling. Um, and I think you could write a reciprocal law that that protects that, but does not override a state's um, uh, would would not, for example, import uh, one state's version of concealed carry to another. Uh, for example, there. Sorry, I'm sorry, but wouldn't it essentially then make all states concealed carry? If you had, I mean, if you had a, you know, if you had permission from from one, say, very gun permissive state, uh, that would essentially mean that you could go to that state and you would you would be able to be to legally carry a concealed weapon uh, in in opposition to the law that was passed by the democratically elected representatives of that state. To a certain, well, I think to a certain extent, yes. And, and I think and again, that's, that's a, you know, that's full the, faith and credit only applies to doesn't apply to everything. And it never has. Uh, you know, it applies certainly to certain policy issues, but never to to major things that that impact sort of the fundamental policy decisions of the state. Things like, for instance, you can think of uh, uh, speed limits or you can think of. Uh, sorry, I was thinking of another thing. Uh, drinking age, those sort of things, you know, and public safety is has long been considered, you know, a clear purview of the states. And that's one of this, you know, I would say bedrock beliefs in terms of a federalist system is that the states get to make these public safety decisions. And it's only uh, under very unusual circumstances that the federal government is allowed to sort of step in there and, and tell states that they can, you know, have to do certain things along those lines. Well, there's also there's also an argument, I think, under the Commerce Clause, uh, under uniform. Wow, you're of, sounding of like commerce. a Democrat here. Use well, no, the Commerce I'm, Clause I'm just, to get the federal government to impose things on the states. I'm just telling you the. I'm just telling you the way it is, sure. and it's out there. Um, no, look. Do I do I think um, there are there would be federalism concerns? I I suppose, but I think the it could be crafted in such a way that, for example, you're still going to have protections uh, if, for example, a state says. Uh, it allows a, a private property owners to opt out of concealed carry and say no concealed carry here. Uh, I don't think uh, you would win a case saying, oh, I'm allowed to do that in some other states. 
but I, you know, so I'll, I'll walk into your business, even though you don't allow it here and your state doesn't. I think, I, I think that, that wouldn't hit full faith and credit, but I think protection from criminal prosecution for, for possession, uh, you know, and carrying on your, on your person, um, uh, I think, I think would. But those are, I mean, it's sort of hypothetical at this point because it's not, I don't think it's going to happen uh, either way. I think that if there is a bill, that comes out. Yeah. Well, a couple other things before we move on. Uh, one, just quickly, that issue of uh, law enforcement incompetence, it's, it seems odd in recent years, or in, I guess in the last year, Republicans have been the party that have been more uh, eager, I would say, to question the competence of law enforcement, which is a huge change. And, you know, I I, I talked to a, a former police officer for, uh, for many, many years who actually ended up getting a PhD in criminal justice and now teaches uh, policing and, and so forth at the college level. And, and I asked him, so what do you think about this incompetence issue? Because in, in my view, in a lot of other areas of government that I've studied, the issue isn't so much incompetence, but it's People who are just incredibly overworked and overburdened, who simply don't have the resources to do what the law is asking them to do. And so often Congress passes laws that impose huge burdens on various levels of government or state governments pass these laws as well, but they don't follow that up with the necessary resources. And 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 he told me, no, that that was his experience, certainly both as a as a practitioner and as somebody who studied this academically. And you know, that's what I've heard from a lot of folks. And so it's easy to say well, there was incompetence and certain things should have been done that weren't done. And I agree with that. It seems that's almost incontrovertible. But the question is why? And it's more often than not, it's not because these are bad, stupid, evil, incompetent people we have working in law enforcement or for the FBI. It's because they just have so much on their plate and there aren't enough of them or they don't have the resources to do the job we're asking them to do. And I think it's unfair to criticize them, to, to you know, question their competence if we're not giving them the tools to do their job. Well, I'll, I'll respond to that with they got phones. Um, you know, that, but that was the that was the big tool that was needed in this case. Uh, they've got phones and, and they have access to a, a phone books. And if you want to say, you know, I think there's an argument to be made about uh, leadership and priorities at organizations because you know to some extent resources flow where the priorities flow. Um, but uh, other other parts, I mean, I, I don't know what what else you can call it when the sheriff's deputy stands outside. Well, that's uh, this different. Shooting while that's it, while different. It's going there's on. And the tools certainly. he needed, he had a gun. He had it. Uh, the reports that there were there were multiple sheriff's deputies who were who were there assigned. Uh, when the sheriff's department receives all these calls and doesn't do something, um, now again you can argue, well, maybe there wasn't much they can do because they didn't have uh, a legal basis to charge him. Uh, again, I, I think that's that's sort of a jump ball there. I think I think maybe they're. They they probably did based on some of the the reports of things that he had said and things that he had said online, um, but they certainly had the resources to go out and visit with him and talk with him and say, hey, what's going on? What are Maybe you doing? Maybe they did. Maybe right. this is my point. I think we're looking at this in isolation, saying as if as if this was the one thing that they had to do and they didn't do it. And I'm not saying that. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that there might not calls. have been incompetence. What I'm saying is. What's the context of how many calls they get about this sort of thing? You know, what's the overall work environment? And I think what we're, what we're seeing here, and just like what we see in so many other instances, is a rush to judgment. 
And I, I mean, there are going what? to be there no. are there are no. I mean, wait, it, let, look, let me it was finish. fair to say as a rush to judgment two weeks ago, but no, I think no. Be, I, I think you're so impatient. My gosh, uh, inve- proper investigations of this, thorough, rigorous investigations take time. And the question that I have, and the question that's not being, it seems to me, asked by anyone except for the investigators, and they're doing stuff behind the scenes, thankfully, uh, is that you know what what is the resource level, and how many calls of this nature do they get? And is it reasonable for us to expect that they follow up in a certain way on every one of these calls? And those are questions that, and if those questions are answered saying, well, yes, they had the resources to do this and they just didn't do it, then yeah, it's incompetence. But before I come to that conclusion, I want an actual investigation. I want somebody to look through this stuff as opposed to just some talking head saying, oh, well, it's incompetent. They should have they should have done this or that. I don't know why they didn't. You know, that that to me seems uh, completely unfair. The law right. enforcement. Well, I'm, I'm I'm fine to, to wait. But uh, again, I think enough of the facts have come in at this point to indicate there is an issue. Uh, whether uh, you whether it is in your case, you think uh, underfunding, essentially, uh, maybe or, I don't know. Or, or something else, then, I mean, we'll, we'll find out. Um, but, but I think, I mean, can we agree that the agencies did not perform as we would have expected them? Yes, to? absolutely. We can agree that with that. Absolutely. You know, one more thing before we move on, I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, the Georgia's Republican legislature, their recent move to strip out a, a jet fuel tax exemption for Delta that was presumably worth right around $50 million or so in retribution for Delta ending a promotion that offered NRA members a discount to the NRA's national convention this May. Now, Delta says at this point, only 13 people had taken advantage of the discount, and their CEO said that the company was doing this because they were ending group discounts for uh, what they called politically divisive organizations. Uh, and and just any thoughts on that, Jay? Uh, I, I think that, uh, <laughs> I think, well, Delta made, made a bad decision. Um, once once you start uh, playing that game, and, and it's, it's happening more and more frequently with uh, corporate America essentially weighing in on, on politics uh, and, and political issues, uh, they ought to expect that that sort of thing. Um, so I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a big believer. I, th- I think the, the boycott of, of these or the putting pressure on these companies because they offer some sort of discount to whatever 13 NRA members. Uh, that's that's pretty ridiculous. Uh, and no matter what you think of the NRA, um, look, they are a, an organization that's been out there for hundreds of years. Uh, well, hundred what hundred fifty ish, hundred sixty ish years. Um, and uh, you know there are many people who who belong to it. Um, there's a lot of things that the AARP stands for that I disagree with. Uh, I mean, I think they've done horrible things that, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> creating our debt society and our, our, our debt time bomb, essentially, that's going to uh, be a tremendous problem. But I'm not advocating that uh, companies stop, you know, allowing ARP discounts. That's up to them. Um, and obviously, but, it was but a when companies decision. want to play politics, yeah, businesses want to yeah. want to play it both ways. Um, you know, if if you want to if you want to uh, uh, put on your helmet and put on the pads and get on the field, you have to expect that you're, you're going to get hit. Yeah. Well, I don't I don't actually think Delta is being you know playing well. I would say I don't think they're trying to be take a liberal position or anything like that. I just think this is a common thing that businesses do when there's a controversial organization. 
oh, right, left right. or right. Business yeah. just wants to pull away from that. Now, I also want but to the, point the out the pressure that, more often comes from the left. I, I think you're probably right things. about that. Yeah. But, you know, there, there are some Democrats who are arguing that uh, uh, stunts like what Georgia's legislature did uh, might affect the state's ability to attract business. Like, for instance, I believe Atlanta is one of the finalists for Amazon's second headquarters, which would be a really big deal, I assume. And you got to think that a company like Amazon would look at that and say, hmm, I don't know. But in any case, I- <laughs> so, so the Democrats are upset because the state stripped away half a billion dollars in corporate welfare um, from from a major corporation uh, and that might not be able to attract another major corporation that is, is trying to extract whatever it well, can from any cities and states, not, including, not half a including sort of bizarre, oh, half, uh, how, much, how much was it? Only 50 million. For Delta, that's oh, probably I thought, I thought you, like- I'm sorry, uh, I thought you said 500 no. million. No, they probably spend $50 million in, I don't know, in, in peanuts or something like that, you right. know, so- so, so it's not like a ton. Fifty billion. Uh, million, not billion. Million. Right. I said million. Okay, thought you said billion. So, but, all right. But, oh, but no, ahead, one, one, last, one last thing. I mean, yeah, in, yeah. in exchange for Amazon, uh, which is, uh, which again is sort of a company which wants to impose upon uh, states, uh, it's whatever its sort of uh, values code of conduct is, which you think is is really sort of bizarre. Uh, and this is this is completely off topic with the NRA thing, but. Um, for example, you know, Amazon sort of insisting upon uh, various, you know, gender equality laws uh, in states that they're going to move into. Uh, because why? Because, I mean, uh, anyway, don't don't get me started. We, well, we no, can have, you know have a whole discussion I, on that. But. Well, I think I think it would be really great to do that because we could get into the whole sort of race to the bottom competition thing yeah. between between states and cities and so forth that we should we should maybe do that at some point. Yeah. All right. Uh, before we get to our next door, we'd like to thank our newest supporter. That's James, who made a very generous donation to the show through PayPal. Uh, he writes, uh, let's see here. I'm happy to support the spirit behind the politics, guys. As long as Mike stands up for the progressive side and calls out Jay when he falls back into conservative media talking points. So <laughs> I do my best, James, you know, uh, but thank you so much for your support. We really do appreciate thank it. Thank you, James. Yep. And, you know, when you make a pledge of financial support to the show, we would love to include a message from you, just like we did for James. So if there's anything you'd like us to pass along, you can, uh, there's a space in both Patreon and PayPal to do that, or you can just send us a message at mail at politicsguys.com. And of course, now that we're ad-free, listener support is what keeps us going. So if you'd like to join James and really all of our other great Politics Guys supporters, just go to politicsguys.com com slash support, or you can just go to politicsguys.com and you'll find uh, uh, a menu item there for uh, support the show. Thanks very much. All right. You know, relations between the U.S. and Russia have been seriously strained since Russia annexed the Ukraine's Crimea region back in 2014, but they took another turn for the worse this week when Russian President Vladimir Putin gave an extremely bellicose speech in which he focused on the American threat to global stability. Now, in this speech, he outlined new weapon systems like nuclear-powered cruise missiles that would be uh, nearly impossible for U.S. defenses to stop. Invincible. Exa- invincible missiles. Now, there are not many defense experts see these weapons announcements as anything that would alter the nuclear balance of power in a significant way. And, and, and given the size of Russia's economy relative to that of the U.S., they're in no position to compete in a new arms race. But that being said... This level of animosity, which really hasn't been seen since the end of the Cold War, I, I would say is obviously a detriment not only to U.S.-Russia relations, but, you know, to peace and stability 
in general. And adding on to that, of course, are Russia's efforts to disrupt U.S. elections and create as much chaos and questioning of the legitimacy of U.S. institutions as possible. Uh, and this week, on Tuesday this week, Admiral Mike Rogers, the head of the NSA and the U.S. Cyber Command, told the Senate Armed Services Committee that Russia hasn't stopped its efforts in this area, that he doesn't believe, Russia doesn't believe it's paid much of a price for what it's done already, and that he hasn't been given any additional authority to combat uh, Russia's cyber operations. He told the committee, we're taking steps, but we're probably not doing enough. A and aside from the constant, you know, no well, collusion. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty, the, uh, pretty fair. Any sort of agency is going to say that. Of, sure. Of, we're doing our best, but we could do more if you give, me, give us more money. I think that's... Well, you know. well, well sure. I, but I think this is, you know, something pretty significant. And aside from Trump, President Trump saying no collusion again and again and again, there's been, in my view, basically no presidential leadership on this issue, which I find extremely troubling. I would expect a president from, regardless of party, to when, when, you know, when met with credible claims of foreign, hostile foreign power, uh, uh, involvement in our elections. And there was a report, uh, I think it was earlier this week or the week before, that seven state systems had been hacked to one degree or another. I, I think the president needs to get way out in front of this thing. Uh, uh, well, what, do you, of, what do you think, Jay? Well, um, two things. First of all, I have to take the uh, obligatory cheap shot. Uh, and and that, that is, there was a guy uh, four or six years ago who said on TV, uh, I think our biggest strategic threat in the world is, is Russia. Uh, and he was lampooned, uh, saying that the 80s are calling and uh, they want their foreign policy back. Mitt Romney. Um, Mitt Romney said that, and uh, the jokester was uh, Barack Obama. Uh, and it was hilarious at the time, and the media loved it. Mitt Romney, what a fool. Uh, nostalgia for the Cold War. Um, but uh, secondly, I think, if you, if you look back to last year, one of the first things that Trump and the, the new Congress did was sanction Russia uh, in relation to to the election meddling and, and so forth. Um, I, I suppose you could you could uh, take further steps. Um, well, I think what Rogers is saying is that the sanctions really haven't, in his view, haven't really affected Russia's behavior at all. And okay. or, and, and with with elections coming up. The, the sense is that enough hasn't been done. And I think in terms of and, what, and that's and that's a fair criticism to say more can be done, but to say nothing's been done or hasn't done anything. Yeah, I, I don't think I anyone's don't. saying that. You know, he said we're taking steps. We're probably not doing enough. And we're talking about, again, a hostile foreign power trying to impugn the you know, legitimacy of our elections and our political systems. That to me strikes at the very heart. Of American democracy, and of course, Russia's not just doing this with the United States. Russia's been doing this with a whole bunch of other countries as well, and it makes sense because they know they can't compete with us economically or strategically. But what they can do is this sort of cyber warfare thing, which allows them to project uh, disruption. I guess you could say uh, abroad in a major way. Well, and I, I, you know, hesitate to say how how. Again, if they want to make nasty social media uh, Facebook posts and get people riled up and, and <laughs> control face. I mean, if that's, if that's all he's got, uh, again, no, no, I think the bigger problem. A, yeah. I mean, look, the, the actual hacking of an election system, 
when you're actually talking about, you know, somehow gaining access to the Secretary of State's website or a Board of Elections or something like that, where you could actually either shut down, uh, you know, exactly. crash yeah. the system or or change the results. Yeah, that's a that's a tremendous problem. That sort of cyber meddling, that sort of cyber attack. Uh, cyber attacks on our other uh, utility systems, on on other uh, corporate systems that you know that that sort of thing. No, that's 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 very bad. Um, posting nasty Facebook stuff. I mean, I, mean, I think it's so. And I think I, what, my, what I'm saying is, I think so often uh, the left has conflated these two threats. Fair uh, enough. The one, okay. the one being bigger than the other, and the one having you know we have more evidence of the other. So. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, that's a great point. I think what a lot of people don't realize is that you know, even though we have, in a sense, national elections, they take place on the same day, the uh, the financing and the, the operating of these elections is not done by the federal government. It's done by local state and local governments. And this is one of these things that's horrifically, I would say, underfunded, though it makes sense because it's not, it's certainly not a glamorous thing. It's that kind of behind the scenes plumbing and infrastructure type of stuff. And and we know that even, you know, very well defended, seemingly well defended systems can be vulnerable to dedicated, smart hackers. And certainly Russia has a lot of those. And so asking states to sort of manage this on their own. Again, I think it's a it's a resource issue. This is not something that's typically a high priority. I think in large part just because elections aren't that, you know, common. I mean, they're common, but it's not like fixing potholes or doing the kind of everyday business of state and local government. And so this is an area where I think uh, the federal government can certainly lend a lot of assistance and where I'd like to see a lot more action. And I would like to think that it's something that we could that could be structured as bipartisan. It's not just about Russian interference. It could be about any hacker who from from North Korea, from you know, regardless. But I think the problem with the Trump administration is President Trump is scared to death, not scared to death, but President Trump feels that any sort of movement in this suggests that, well, yes, Russia helped him win the election and therefore he's not legitimate. And that's just something he's not willing to go in that direction, obviously. He he bombed Syria. But but still, I mean, he seems <laughs> I mean, again, to be I'm, so I'm just, incredibly... Again, uh, no, why I mean, would he not do this otherwise, the, you know? The, the idea... Um, uh, I'm not I, saying I, it's again, a rational I'm, view. I'm just saying it's what he seems to think. Well, look, I first of all agree that, look, the Russian problem uh, is real and I would say has been real since 1917. Um, the the uh, the idea that Trump's done nothing or somehow this points to collusion because he hasn't, you know, bombed them or something. No, I, I mean, don't he, believe he, that. He bombed, he bombed their allies. I think uh, he believes it. Um, right. You're saying you're saying he's afraid to do he's afraid to get tough on Russia because people might think he's colluding with Russia. No, I, I think that he doesn't want to come out in front on this issue and really push hard on this issue because he feels like it's all tied in with his being persecuted for this fake news collusion story, so forth. And so anything involving Russia and elections, if he takes any kind of stance on this, it's somehow gotcha. arguing you're, that You're saying he would, it would like an admission of, of that there is exactly. something there. Um, Exactly. And, and I, I, I suppose I get that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
So, but, but so, again, yeah. to me, I, I think you can make you can draw the line, and I think Trump is probably right that the media wouldn't draw this line though between hardening um, uh, online systems that pre- regard voting uh, versus what do you do about you know Russian trolls on Facebook? Uh, sure, and two I, different I think issues. Those are, those are two two different issues. One is a national security one. One is uh, one is not. Uh, yeah, great point. Great point. Also, just just coincidentally, last night on on TBS, uh, they had the 2012 version of Red Dawn um, that I watched with my daughter, and I just had a wonderful time explaining to her, telling her about the the 1984 version of, of Red Dawn, um, and uh, it, I think you and I watched that together on cable one time, and it's. Yeah, well, I, I would say people calling this new Cold War. Uh, many of those people, I, I, I would hazard to guess, were, were not really around for the exactly. old Cold War. You and I caught the tail end of it, and it was a very different feeling than than this. This is, uh, I think, that's a bit of a hyperbole. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's the other thing. I don't think there is any real legitimate concern. Uh, certainly not to the level of, of it was in the eighties of of a, a military conflict with uh, with the Russians. Yeah. All right, but well, you, people should watch Red Dawn just because just because it's awesome. <laughs> yes, okay. Well, you know, mo- moving on, it's been a crazier week than usual in the West Wing. Hard to say, hard to believe, but let me see if I get all this down, Jay. Okay, I'll take a deep breath. President Trump's son-in-law and top advisor, Jared Kushner, had his security clearance downgraded due to a, a variety of, I guess we'll call them problematic financial entanglements with foreign investors. Uh, Trump Confidant and communications director Hope Hicks resigned shortly uh, thereafter, testifying at, well, shortly after she testified to the House Intelligence Committee that she sometimes told white lies for the president. Uh, Chief of Staff John Kelly, who was brought in to impose some semblance of discipline, is said to be on the outs. With sources saying that the president's letting people know that he's no really he's no longer really listening so much to his chief of staff. Uh, there are reportedly plans in the works to remove National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster. Uh, the president has once again publicly berated his attorney general, calling Jeff Sessions' appointment of an inspector general to investigate possible visa abuse disgraceful, in all caps. And um, <laughs> I think that might be it. Did I miss anything there, Jay? Uh, you got a lot of it. You got, you got the gist of it. So, I mean, just to be clear here, in over a year, just a bit over a year, he's gotten rid of a chief of staff, maybe with another one on the way, I don't know, a chief strategist, two dep- deputy chiefs of staff, a national security advisor, maybe with the second one on the way out, two deputy national security advisors, a press secretary, three communications directors, and an FBI director. I mean, <laughs> wow. That that uh, what, what do you make of this, Jay? Well, you know, I think the, the first thing with – this is the caveat I think we always – want to add that uh that both mike and i are uh well read in terms of our sources uh we have in some cases uh, uh sources that are active uh in in political events and that, that we talk to and maybe get a little inside insight from them um and and we have sort of a long background of, of looking at these things and analyzing them and knowing how they go uh that said uh we i don't know anybody in the west wing uh, or have any inside insight uh, into what's going on there any more than than what uh, I read in the newspapers. Um, so there's there's always this sort of palace intrigue stuff that the press loves, and it, it's hard to say what's what's true and what's not. Um, uh, what we can say, I mean, on on some things, I, th- I think 
you can make some some reasonable. I mean, I think the whole picks statements about telling white lies for the president. Well, that's sort of a communication director's job. Uh, I don't think anyone would dis- dispute that. Um, and uh, from everything that's been written again about her testimony, there was nothing sort of shocking or damning or or would indicate that her testimony was any in any way related to her deciding to leave. Uh, and you could also come up with a lot of good reasons why you why being communications director for Donald Trump uh, might be a job that that uh, you yeah. might want to get out of. And on that point, you know, also she was involved in a relationship with Rob Porter, exactly. uh, who, yeah, there was that who other... also was let go after the, the uh, abuse, uh, spousal abuse claims, that sort of thing. But but I agree with you in terms of what just what we know, as opposed to what sources have said, you know, we can certainly say that the turnover has been extraordinary, and especially in the communications area, which makes absolute sense, because it's fairly clear that the president uh, is feels stifled by any sort of message discipline, uh, and, and he wants to do his own thing when he wants to, and uh, that's a real problem for the people who are trying to work closely with him to try to put, because of course, one of the jobs of senior white house staff is to craft a coherent, clear, uh, single message, you Consistent know, message, message. Yeah. yeah. Message discipline is huge. And it is, I, it, it has the Trump people tearing out their hair, basically and understandably. So I would say, and also I would say that, I get a sense. This happens in a lot of presidencies where you get this sort of bunker mentality over a time. I can't trust anyone, that sort of thing. I get a sense that there's a bit more of this earlier on in the Trump administration than maybe in other points. And I would also say, in terms of the Sessions issues, and Donald Trump has had issues with Jeff Sessions for a while now. I disagree with Jeff Sessions profoundly on almost everything related to criminal justice policy. But I also believe that Jeff Sessions is an, is an honorable guy who, based on his ideological predispositions, says, says to himself, what's the right thing to do here? And then he does that thing. And the president hates that because when the right thing is what the president doesn't want, the president just sees that as being disloyal. But in this, it seems to me that loyalty in the Trump administration is strictly a one-way street. And so he's written off Jeff Sessions, who I would say is probably one of the more honorable people in his administration, again, who I don't agree with on anything. And, and I just find that disgraceful in all caps. Well, and I think I think first of the other the other piece of the the sessions things on the merits. Uh, I think there's a really good argument that sessions is is absolutely right. Exactly. That the better way to to go about this is an inspector general's election or investigation, and because that's the inspector general's job, um, uh, and the inspector general has, has done sort of a good job on this already. Um, for example, finding lost emails and so forth. Um, you know, and I also think Sessions is right uh, politically on this, that I think it makes more sense. I think that investigation coming internally through an inspector general is going to have more credibility than uh, sort of dueling um, uh, special uh, counsels. Um, you know, again, I suppose you can differ with, with one another. I mean, I think Trump looks at it as well. They, meaning the other side, has a special counsel. I ought to have a special counsel, too. Um and and I think that's that's just sort of a, a bad idea because what you end up with uh, strategically is just sort of this you know he said she said both sides pointing fingers and and nobody ends with it. so 
but but that's just me talking. Uh, I think Sessions is doing the right thing uh, on the merits and politically. Yeah. And, you know, I think to me the fundamental and even, problem— And even if—and and, uh, one more thing. Even yeah. if he isn't, uh, the way to handle it isn't to send out a tweet. It's to pick up the phone and say, Jeff, what the hell are you doing? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But to me, that gets to the fundamental problem, which is presidential temperament. And I don't mean being, you know, nice and diplomatic and so forth. It's, it's just— Thinking in terms of if you want to actually get things done in in a policy sense, uh, and you don't have massive majorities supporting you, like say you know uh, an FDR and LBJ or someone like that had, there were certain temperamental qualities that are incredibly helpful, like uh, being comfortable with ambiguity, being able to see the world from the other person's point of view, which is not to say adopting that view, uh, being willing to compromise on certain things, being or, or okay. Just, or just also having the discipline to know that you don't have to comment on absolutely yes. everything that, that comes over the transom. Exactly. It's okay exactly. To, to just not say something. Yeah. And so, so you don't think- have to tweet it. <laughs> yeah, but, but but apparently, you know, this this president just can't help can't help himself. And if, if that's one thing I would say we know for certain about uh, Donald Trump at this point. All right. Well, it's time for what we're reading. We step back and, you know, talk about the more in-depth, thoughtful things we're reading, listening to or watching. Jay, do you want to start us off this week? I, you know, I will. And this is probably people go. There he goes again. Um, this is a commentary piece in The Wall Street Journal from February 26th. And we'll find an, a non-paywall link, I'm sure. Um, and the reason and, and here's the thing. It's a little weird because uh, in rereading this now, um, I, I probably would have to backtrack, but the most important thing is it's written by Joseph Epstein, uh, who oh, he's is great. Between one of you and I, it's he, he's one of he's one of the he's an American treasure, and people don't realize uh, if you can write any essay, book, whatever by Joseph Epstein, um, he's he's smart, he's funny, um, but it, it has to do with the only good thing about Donald Trump is all his policies. And I would have agreed with this uh, probably before the uh, the, the <laughs> yeah. tariff stuff uh, came up. Uh, but but he talks about this discussion of with his son. Um, uh, he said the, the nicely formulated the problem for thoughtful conservatives. Uh, I approve of almost everything he has done. My son remarked, and I disapprove of almost everything he has said. Um, and I think that that sort of puts puts you know where a lot of thoughtful conservatives uh, were probably again at least pre um, uh, pre tariffs uh, that and I guess he hasn't done it yet. He's just said it. Um, but, but the idea that, uh, look, you can have some really solid, uh, policy wins. And again, we think that the, uh, tax, uh, uh, we being conservatives, uh, the, the tax, uh, plan is, has been a big policy win. Some of the confirmations have been big policy wins. Deregulation has been a big policy win. Uh, these are things the Republicans have been looking for for years and years and years. Uh, but it is always, uh, uh, there's always that bittersweet bit where, cause it's, it's tinged with some crazy tweet, uh, or it's 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 the two steps forward, one step back, um, uh, because he he lacks sort of the self discipline uh, to uh, to to control his. I don't even know what what you call it, but but anyway, I think it's it's a good um, uh, a good uh, read in terms of where a lot of conservatives are on on Trump. That they again they they disapprove of Trump the man. They disapprove of of the silly tweets, the sort of diminishing of the presidency. Um, and uh, boy, we wish we could get someone who could uh, uh, enact conservative policy, uh, but uh, still be a grown up. Yeah. 
Well, and I would say that uh, for for my for my friends on the left, even though you will almost certainly not agree with uh, Joseph Epstein's uh, political views, he is well worth. I would read just about anything that he writes. In fact, I've actually uh, I'm almost embarrassed to admit I've actually sent him fan letters, and he had emails really, and he has responded back uh, so incredibly graciously. And I've I've bought I think just about all of his books. He is uh, he is a, a wonderful writer. Uh, probably I would I would say he's the the greatest living American essayist. I would go that far. And so, uh, yeah, that's a great recommendation, Jay. All right. Uh, my recommendation is a book, uh, actually a book from someone I've had on, the, I've talked to on the show, uh, Larry Lessig. The book is Republic Lost, the uh, second edition, actually. And um, there's a story behind this. Larry Lessig is a big uh, proponent of campaign finance reform, arguing that the current system hurts both liberals and conservatives. It's a, it's a interesting argument. And I read this book when it first came up a number of years ago. I started using it in my class. And I noticed that uh, this summer when I was picking books for my, you know, my upcoming classes that he had a new edition out. And I always say, I'll get the new edition and check it out. And I assigned it for my class. And now with most new editions of books, you get like a new foreword or a new afterword or a couple little things here. And that was my assumption. So I just blithely assigned it to my class saying, well, it'll be a little updated, that kind of thing. That'll be good. And I looked, no, he rewrote like 70% of the book. It's like, oh, great. Oh, I have to do, redo all of my notes. I, w- I was highly pissed off at Larry Lessig for a while, but the stuff that he, that his, his revisions were great revisions, very thoughtful. I really admire the fact that he didn't just try to go for a money grab by putting out a second edition. This is a, a true update. It's a, it's a fascinating book, whether you agree or disagree. If you want to get a, a really interesting look as to the reasons why maybe both the left and the right would be should be for some kind of reform of our campaign finance system. This is the book. Uh, it, it's it's an amazing book, and I highly recommend it. Were, were any of the the changes a result of uh, your interview? Uh, no, he, did, no. he didn't mention it. <laughs> like after discussing with uh, uh, podcast host Michael Baranowski, I've. I've changed my mind. Well, that was actually after I talked to him after the second one came out. Ah, but maybe gotcha. in the third edition, he'll you know incorporate. He's working some on of it. That. He's working on it now. Exactly. All right. Well, you know, Jay, I realized that we're at the end of today's episode, and there's something that we haven't done. Uh oh, what's that? Yeah. Well, we haven't interrupted the show to pitch razors or meal delivery or ticket services or really anything. And you know why that is? Why, Mike? Because <laughs> we're completely ad-free. We know that's what you listeners, what listeners want. But of course, the only way we can do that is with your support. Now, there are plenty of ways you can support the show, and a lot of them don't involve giving us any money at all. Uh, you can, of course, give us money. We I love that. that. Yeah, yeah go to politicsguys.com slash support. That's a direct link. Or just go to politicsguys.com and go to support in the main menu or click on the PayPal or Patreon links you'll see there. But also, subscribing to the show really helps, as does sharing episodes. And, uh, all, you know, you can also leave reviews, ratings of the show on iTunes, or just get in touch with us. You know, if you got a question, comment, correction, you know where to reach us at this point. Mail at politicsguys.com. There's our Facebook page where you can message us and we post stuff throughout the week. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.